The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. You know, the theme that we have come upon for this year is the theme of prayer. And I've been, since the turn of the year, doing some sermons, uh, a brief sermon series on this topic. Um, And so I just wanted to do a brief review, especially for the Catalyst students who weren't really uh, able to attend and listen to those sermons. Uh, In the first message, we introduced the theme of prayer as relationship. Prayer as relationship. And in that message, we looked at Michelangelo's painting that was on the Sistine Chapel. And in it is this creation of Adam. And we see in that picture God straining forward to make contact with Adam. But in contrast, Adam has a much more relaxed pose, almost a disinterested look on his face, not even fully extending his arm to make this contact with God. And I think in some ways, this image captures the big story of the Bible. It's of a God who longs for relationship with us while we aren't nearly as interested in that relationship with him. But it's also a reminder to us that at the heart of prayer is a desire to simply be with God, getting to know him as we share with him the things that are on our hearts. We then looked at prayer as request, talking about how taking to heart God's invitation to ask him for the things that we need. And in that message, I shared about my daughter's dog, Dobby, who uh, is not shy about asking for the things that he wants. Uh, He begs every dinner, interestingly, at my feet. I think he knows who the one is that's going to give him the food. Every time I come home, he jumps on this ottoman and starts running circles, uh, barking at me until I come and pet him. And the truth is, sometimes I have an armful of groceries, or sometimes I have to use the bathroom. But no matter what, he protests unless I drop everything and start petting him and playing with him. Um, every time I'm at work at my desk, he comes and wants to sit on my lap, and he will whimper and give me those puppy dog eyes until I let him sit on my lap. And it's frustrating because half, it, I can't balance him easily on my lap, so I'm holding with one arm and typing with the other hand, and it just doesn't work. And the truth is, often it's just too much for me, you know? Uh, it's, Betty and I keep saying, now that our children are all gone to uh, their own lives, like, do we get a dog? And I keep thinking, no, we're not getting a dog. Uh, This dog has no sense of personal space or boundaries. And yet, now that Dobby is back in Rhode Island with my daughter, Noelle, there is this big hole in my heart that is missing. Every time I come home, I actually still look for Dobby, and it's this little sadness that he's not sitting there on the ottoman waiting for me. And I think in the same way, what Jesus is saying to us is, uh, we shouldn't be shy about asking God for the things that we need. He invites us in prayer to approach him with the kind of confidence that a young child has when approaching their parents and asking for the things that they need. Matthew 7, 7 to 8, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door 
will be open. This doesn't mean that he gives us everything we ask for. But by faith, regardless of the response, whether it is granted or denied, by faith, I know that I am praying to a God who loves me and wants only good for me. We then looked at prayer as renovation, seeing prayer as a tool for our own spiritual growth. And in that message, we, uh, we talked through three different kinds of hearts. There is this darkened heart, one that is so consumed by unhealthy and destructive thoughts that they have very little power to resist them. But then we talked about the divided heart, and it is the person who wants to do the right thing, but also feels the pull to darker places. And what happens is when they give in to the temptation, they very rarely can fully enjoy it because of the guilt and the shame. But then also when they attempt to do righteousness, it's equally unsatisfying because they're doing it in their own strength. And it's often accompanied by, by a heart of resentment or self-righteousness or pride. But the renovated heart is the person who really lives in the reality of God's presence and his promises and so that the inner life matches the outer life. And that is a heart that can only come about through the work of prayer as we learn to experience the presence of God and his transforming work in our lives. Psalm 139, 23 to 24, Search me, O God, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is connected with what I want to talk about this morning, which is the last message in this topic of prayer. For our annual meeting, I want to close out this series on prayer with a brief word on prayer in community. Prayer in community. And I want to begin it with what's going to seem like a totally unrelated topic to the idea of prayer in community, but it's the way that the Jews understood the makeup of the human uh, person. Uh, use a fancier term, it would be uh, the, uh, the biblical anthropology, according to Jews. And there are two key words in Hebrew that you got to understand to understand how it works. The first is this Hebrew word will be translated as soul or being. And what it is, is it's focusing on our physical existence. It's basically, when we talk about the nefesh, it's saying it's the difference between something that is dead and something that is alive. It's something that is more than a hunk of tissue. It is a living, breathing creature, someone that is able to move and act in this world. It's a living being. And it's, the Bible doesn't talk so much as we have a nefesh, but it says that we are a nefesh. We are a living soul that has been given this life from God. But the other Hebrew word is this word ruach, okay? Ruach. And that is usually translated in English as spirit. But what's interesting is that word ruach can also be translated as wind or breath. And what that word is focusing on is not the physical, but the immaterial. It's that part of us that also is like life in us, that results in us living the way that we do. It animates us, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, the deeper things that are inside of us that make us do what we do. Ruach motivates us to do what we do. 
It is, in other words, the life energy that flows in every person that enables us to get things done in life and even deciding what things we choose to do in life. It is the power or the force that drives our actions. It is the wind in our sail. I think a modern parallel to particularly this word ruach, which is the one I want to focus on, would be in our day we often talk about people's energies, don't we? Like they, they give off a negative energy. Or I, I don't like the energy in that person. It's interesting, but that gets us really close to the idea of ruach or spirit here. Okay? Um, Job chapter 12, verse 10 says, In his hand is the life, which is nephesh, or soul, of every creature and the breath, ruach, spirit of all mankind. And so the clear message is both nephesh and ruach are given to us by God. And then in Job 7, verse 11, it says, Therefore I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my ruach, my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Proverbs 15, verse 4 says, The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit, the ruach. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now that's pneuma, which is the Greek translation of ruach. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So these terms are all used to describe the way that our ruach, our spirit, is shaped by the circumstances of life. Job describes his spirit being in anguish or torment because of the suffering that he's experiencing. This proverb expresses the destructive way that our words can crush a person's spirit, break down a human spirit. The Beatitudes, Jesus is talking about a group of people that are so disadvantaged by their circumstances, they are so monetarily poor, that they become poor in spirit, meaning they have very little power to act in this world because of their poverty in terms of finances. And sadly, a lot of the descriptions of the Bible of our spirit are like this. They're very negative in the sense that the darkening or the crushing of the energy that flows in us is often a result of the fact that we live in a broken world. Well, here is the interesting thing to me. Jesus also had, has a ruach, a spirit. A spirit that defined who he is, a life force, an energy inside him. And even the most rejected and outcast in society felt that they could approach Jesus because of the spirit that flowed out of him. He gave off this life energy that was so attractive that people longed to be with him. I guess in our, you know, the youth would say he had riz, right? I don't know if I'm using it properly, but that's what we're talking about. Okay, people are cringing, I'm sorry. I don't know what I did here, but, but it is this idea, <laughs> it is this idea that this spirit of a person is tangible and we can experience it through somebody else. Jesus energized the spirits of other people, giving them hope because of the experience of of his love in their life. But what is interesting is this. Jesus says, I know you guys are so sad when I tell you I'm going to leave you, but he said this. He said, it's actually better that I leave 
this earth. Because he said, when I leave this earth, I'm going to do something amazing. This spirit that's in me, my spirit, just like how you guys have your spirit, my spirit in me, I'm actually going to give to you. And it's going to be inside of you. John chapter 16, verse 7. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's saying that same thing that attracts you to me, that same thing that makes you want to hold on to me and not let me go, that same thing that you have been so blessed by by me, that spirit in me, when I die and rise again and go to be with my father, I'm going to give that spirit to you. And that spirit is going to actually be in you. 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, we see the fulfillment of that promise. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, right? Wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is the promise fulfilled that Jesus gave to them. The Holy Spirit now residing in the hearts of God's saints. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Lord, now every time you hear Lord, you got to hear Jesus. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplated the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now what Paul is saying is that Spirit of Jesus that now lives in us is transforming us to actually be more like him. Look at how intertwined the picture of the Spirit is with the picture of Jesus. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 through 16. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to mere human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That is saying something unbelievably profound. Just as you and I have a spirit that drives us, motivates us, that makes us make certain choices, Jesus had a spirit, has a spirit, and says that same spirit that is in Jesus now resides in you so that you can understand the mind of Jesus. It's like this idea that if you ever wanted to be in the mind of someone and says, what makes you tick? I don't get you, you know? I think husbands and wives often feel that way about each other, you know? It's just, if I could just crawl inside that mind and see things from your perspective, maybe I can understand why we're having such a hard time 
relating to each other. And what Paul is saying is through the Spirit of God, that mind of Jesus is now accessible to us. Let me just paint you a picture of what this could look like in our life. And this is not a hypothetical. It's, it's actually happened last Tuesday. Um, Betty and I decided to meet for dinner at a restaurant that I will not name. Um, but it's known as a specialty restaurant for making a particular kind of Korean soup. And we get there, and a lot of times this place is very busy. But on this day, it wasn't that busy. But for some reason, the person, the, the maitre d' or whatever, he, he seats us in what I consider to be the worst seat in the restaurant. It's this corner seat that's just tucked away. So it, you feel like this is, if you have a detention at school, this is where you would sit, right? You, we got tucked away in this corner table where it's like your elbow is bumping against the glass and you can't move. And then before the soup comes out, they're supposed to bring out, you know, the side dishes. And the most important thing is the egg because you got to put the egg in right away. Otherwise, it doesn't cook. And the guy brought our soup out and he didn't give us any of the side dishes or the egg. So I asked, I said, hey, we need the egg right now, you know. Please bring it right away. Otherwise, it's not going to cook because I had that happen to me before. So the guy goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just kind of brushed me off. And it was like, three, four, maybe five minutes before he came back with the egg. By then, my soup is all, like, not nearly as hot. So I threw the egg in there, and I'm just tossing it, and it's just clear. It's not cooking. I go, great, I'm going to eat raw egg now. Um, so I eat the soup like that, and the guy never comes back once to check on us and ask us if we need anything. And finally, we had to go up front, grab the guy, bring him back, and we wanted to order food for our son, Luke. Uh, who didn't join us that night. So we ordered a takeout carryout for him. And we're done with our meal, and we're waiting 10, 15, 20 minutes, and we're like, why is this taking so long? And then we finally went up and he goes, is, can, you know, like, can you ask the kitchen to get our carryout food here? And he's like, oh, it's been sitting here for like 10, 15 minutes. And we're like, you didn't tell us that the food is ready, and you saw us waiting, and by the time that I'm walking out here, like, I am livid, you know, and I am grumbling, and like, the whole meal I'm complaining, going, you know, like, oh, you know, I'm going, like, I am not tipping 20%, no way, you know, and I'm like, griping about the tip that I'm going to leave and everything. But <laughs> as I'm driving home, um, I take that anger into prayer, and I just pray to God, saying, God, I really feel like in this moment, I need you. And I need your heart. And it was just almost like something miraculous. I felt like what was weird was my reaction in that prayer was I started laughing. I was laughing at myself. I felt like this was God's laughter toward me, not in a mocking, belittling way, but I felt like in this kind-hearted, like fatherly way, God was like laughing at me going, is this really such a big deal that you're going to ruin your entire evening over this? And I felt like this was God's spirit, Jesus' spirit, coming into my spirit. And what was so amazing, it was also not a condemning voice. It was not saying, shame on you. You call yourself a Christian. How can you have acted that way? But what it felt like was this longing for an opportunity missed to be Christ-like in a situation that I just totally let by. But I believe this is how the spirit of Christ operates in our lives.
is that when we are left to our own instincts, so often we go to these dark places of self-pity or anger or resentment and others. But through the gift of prayer, we can actually have the mind of Christ influencing our own mind. It's just that we need to invite that spirit into our heart. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 to 19, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. This is where I want to transition it into this being a community activity. What Paul is doing is he is praying, let more of God's spirit influence your spirit. That is his prayer to the saints, to the church. And I think that needs to be the overriding prayer that we are praying for one another. When there is this darkness that is covering our spirit, let the Spirit of God review, reveal the very heart of Jesus about how he feels about me in this moment, how he feels about these people that I cannot stand right now, how he feels about this situation that I find so difficult. What I want to simply say as I, as I close this, I'm going to wrap up here, is simply to say... Um, as we begin to pray these prayers for one another, I think this is how we are going to experience transformation as a church. I want to say this. It's one thing for me to listen to a sermon, a teaching, but I have been changed, maybe arguably even more so, by the prayers of others for me. And when people pray, it's not just that I feel like power is coming to me, but even when we pray together and they pray, I realize sometimes I am trapped in this little perspective of my own thinking. But when I hear the prayers of somebody else after I've shared something, I realize that is the heart of Jesus speaking into my heart as they have opened themselves up to God. And that is the ministry that we need to offer to one another. Sometimes we're so trapped in our own thinking and our dark thoughts. But when somebody else prays for us, they are praying the very heart of Jesus into our situation. And this is what I want to say is I really sense at ICC that we have grown as a community to the extent that I think we could call ourselves a confessing community, a confessing community. I think actually in many of our small groups, we have gone a very good distance in learning how to be vulnerable and share our junk with each other. But I think in 2024, the invitation to us as a church is, how do we go beyond just being a confessing community to being a praying community where we actually take risks with each other, not only for the things we confess, but as a result of that confession, the kind of bold and courageous prayers we're going to pray for each other as we sense the heart of God for that person to pray along that way. Dane Ortland, in his preface to uh, Miller's book, A Praying Church, writes this, the battle to pray is not mainly a battle against prayerlessness, but a battle against discouragement, cynicism, and unbelief. If this is true of our individual lives, and it is, including mine, how much more of the life of our local churches? 
A church with rich history, flawless music, powerful preaching, amazing childcare, a paid-off mortgage, and stellar attendance, but sleepily operating out of the resources of the flesh instead of prayer is headed toward tragic inconsequentiality. Let's pray. Thank you.